This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Hi, I'm Chris Judd. Welcome to Talk Your Book. Today we'll be joined by Romano Salatena from Katana Asset Management. Now, Romano, I needed a big name for the first ever episode in partnership with Ticket News and you've delivered, so thanks very much for, uh, for making the time. Thanks for having us on, Chris. I thought before we get into your stock pick, if you could just start with a little bit about Katana Asset Management and, and how you guys look to invest. Yeah, so we're style agnostic, which means we try and take the best precepts across the five investment styles as we see them. You know, uh, value, growth, quality, fundamental and, and uh, momentum and try and employ those precepts. We try and reduce any artificial constraints that limit how we think or how we invest. Um, and we've been going for 17 years now, which is uh, quite unusual uh, in the Australian landscape. And, and last week, we we're actually fortunate enough in Sydney to, to receive a Star Manager Award as one of the top 10 managers in Australia out of about 10,000 that they crunched the data on. So um, we've just got to try and take that and continue to, uh, to, to develop and evolve. Well, congratulations on the award. And, and maybe tell us a little bit about your cash positioning at the minute, because I think that probably tells a story on, on how you're seeing markets. Typically try and sit at between 15 and 35% cash through the cycle. Our mandate allows us to go to 80%, but it's unlikely we'd ever get anywhere near that. Um, right at the moment, we're sitting on 38%, which probably explains how we're currently positioned. You know, we see a record number of issues um, that can potentially derail these markets and bring us uh, lower, and they're well documented in the property crisis in China quantitative tightening, which is now US 95 billion a month. Um, you know, the inflationary pressures, and of course, number one, don't fight the Fed. Uh, the flip side, though, is that it is record positioning. Pretty much every person we talk to is positioned mm. uh, for the markets to roll over. As we're seeing, you know, just more recently, when, when the market doesn't do that, it can sort of um, flip up pretty aggressively. And what stock did you want to talk about today? I'm a little bit torn, actually, because you know, the, most sectors we look at, we actually don't want to invest in right at the moment. We normally hold 55 to 65 stocks through the cycle and run 42 stocks at the moment, which is the lowest we've had in a decade. So we're finding a lot of reasons not to hold stocks right at the moment. Um, the stock I want to talk about today is really a tactical idea. So it's not structural, it's not thematical, it's more tactical, which means we're, we sort of see a six to 12 month time frame on it. Uh, and it's Coronado Coal. I'm a little bit torn between that and Yan Coal. They both are just generating enormous amounts of cash flow. But I think Coronado Coal is probably the safer of the two. And now most people watching this or listening to this will have some familiarity with, with coal markets. But for those that don't, maybe could you give us a brief outline of the different coal markets and, and what they're used for? Yeah, look, simplistically, there's, there's two, there's two um, categories. There's thermal or energy coal. Uh, and then there's metallurgical coal, which is uh, where Coronado predominantly sits. 85% of what Coronado produces is metallurgical coal or met coal, 15% thermal coal. So thermal coal markets at the moment, um, you know, that's where we're using uh, to generate electricity. And that's where we're seeing enormous demand. And that's where we actually see the opportunity, despite the fact that Coronado is a met coal stock. And what are their, uh, what are their assets? 
Yeah, so they've got, in simplistic terms again, and this is what we like also, they've got two groupings of assets, Australia basically current in Queensland and the US. And the nice thing about that is when we saw, for example, China's ban on Australian metallurgical coal, which is thawing to some degree at the moment, but at the height of that ban, they were able to um, still ship coal aggressively from the US into the Chinese met coal market and still capitalise on some of those record prices. So that ge geographical diversification uh, is another factor that we like about the company. And their first half of this calendar year was, was strong, but there was wet weather, there was some planned maintenance at Kara and a, a lower coal price. Are you expecting those things to sort of rectify in the second half of this calendar year and, and for there to be sort of potentially bonanza results in the second half of this calendar year? Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think, look, the first half was very, very strong. You know, the dividend over 30 cents for the, for the half was with a special was uh, extraordinary. Um, and it's heading towards their record year, which is 2019. They paid 60 cents in dividends. Um, but you're spot on there in terms of there was wet weather, which impacted first half production. But also what people need to understand is that the coal price or the realised coal price they receive has about a three-month lag. And you might remember back in the June quarter, the coal price, the Met coal price briefly spiked at US 600 a tonne and sort of averaged probably 400 US a tonne for the quarter. It's an extraordinary price. So we'll, they'll see the benefit of that flow through in this quarter along with record production. So they are setting up for a very, very strong half. And we've seen a lot of things over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years as investors that we thought were impossible. A lot of people thought were impossible. I think of negative interest rates, a negative oil price during COVID. And one thing that investors thought was impossible was that the Met coal price could be lower than the thermal coal price because Met coal is a higher, higher grade, higher quality product. But that's what we've seen with the energy crisis in Europe for the time being is the Met coal price currently sitting below the thermal price. Maybe just walk us through that dynamic and, and whether or not a company like Coronado can actually sell some of their Met coal for, um, for energy purposes. Yeah, and I think that you're absolutely spot on. That's the real opportunity here, apart from the fact they've got, you know, production improving and coal pricing coming through from the first, from the, the last quarter. I think the real opportunity there is a bit of a transition. So in 28 years of investing, I've never seen the Met coal price trade below the thermal coal price. And what we're seeing now is not only is it trading below, but you know the thermal coal price out of Newcastle for 6,000 calorific value coal is 400 to 450 US a tonne, give or take, on any given day. And the Met coal price is, is you know 300 US a tonne or less. So there's this huge differential there. Over time, we think that has to normalise. Over time, we will see some substitution. We're going to see some of the volumes in the in the lower quality met coal market, so some of the semi-soft and some of the PCI pulverised coal injection product, we'll see some of that heading to thermal coal markets. It's not as straightforward as just you know throwing it in the furnace. That there needs to be some adjustments. But if you know if we see even ten percent of the production out of met coal move to thermal markets, you're going to see a, a pronounced deficit in the met coal market. So over time, we see the thermal coal price will retrace, will come back, and we see that the met coal price will um, will rally from here. And so in terms of energy markets, I think most investors are, are wildly bullish, really, for the, for the foreseeable future, given you know, the issues with Nord Stream we've seen and all sorts of other issues in the short term over in Europe post the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But one area where investors are generally pretty nervous is the, the Chinese property market. Uh, how are you viewing that and how are you getting comfortable with 
uh, I guess, the world's need for steel uh, in a Chinese property market that appeals to be cooling off at best and at, at worst crashing? Yeah, I think you touched on two things here. I think first it's worth touching on the structural change we're seeing in the European energy market. Like we have literally had a line drawn in the scene. The war in Ukraine could end tomorrow, mm. but Europe is not going to return to the level of dependency on energy that we've seen over the past couple of decades. So we have seen a line in the sand. Um, LNG will be the medium term um, fix there. That's going to take two to three years to bring on the LNG volumes and the import terminals and the pipelines, et cetera, to meet that requirement. So the next sort of two or so years, coal is the only solution that meets their, um, you know, their energy emergency. Uh, and we're seeing a whole variety of old plants coming out of, out of uh, that have been mothballed coming back into production to meet uh, the, the short-term crisis. So as I said, it's a tactical idea for us. Mm. It's, you know, we've got a 6-12-month you know, um, time stamp on it uh, and then would like, look to, um, to reverse this position. So I think that's the first thing to look at is that there is this structural change in, um, in the energy transition market. In terms of the Chinese property market, look, we are cautious on that. You know, for over a decade now, we've known that there's been some unsustainable practices there. Um, and also the COVID lockdowns, which aren't getting a lot of airtime at the moment. But at the you know, as we sit here today, China is still fixated on locking down large swaths of its population as a way of trying to handle COVID. And, and you know, that's not sustainable. I need to evolve from that. What we've seen in the past is whenever China gets into a crisis is that they throw a lot of money into infrastructure and the property markets to stimulate the economy. We're seeing now that's not having the same sort of leverage. So it won't be the go-to play as much as in the past. They won't look to, as if major infrastructure build and major property projects to try and stimulate the economy. It's having less of an effect there now. Uh, but nonetheless, it'll still be part of the mix. And, you know, I think over time, people are failing to appreciate the industrialisation that's happening in other parts of Southeast Asia and also, um, of course, in India. And China will still produce an enormous amount of that steel but they'll increasingly export that steel into those markets, particularly in the Southeast Asia, or we'll see those markets develop their own um, steel works over time, which will uh, continue to absorb net coal. So you know, in, in summary, we're not bullish on that space. We think there is, um, there is some slippage there. But we think the, the transition into, into thermal coal will outweigh any slippage we see in net coal demand. And uh, all over financial Twitter or, or financial media, there's plenty of people talking about a global recession that's potentially looming. Uh, broadly in commodity markets, how are you feeling about the lead into, or the effect on commodity prices a global recession would have, given the lead in, particularly in capex, in, in particularly naughty commodities, for want of a better word, in, in oil and, and coal, compared to the last commodity super cycle we had leading into China, where capex and investment was, was significantly higher? Yeah, you touched on two really important aspects there, you know, the demand side of the equation, the supply side of the equation. Look at the demand side first. There's no doubt that, you know, recession is negative for, for demand. We saw initially there was a focus on inflation, which was great for commodities, so commodity prices rallied. But then the rhetoric very quickly transitioned from inflation to recession, and recession, of course, is bad for, for commodity prices. Just as a simple sort of um, rough guide, if you look back at the March 2020 COVID event, that had about a 10% impact on demand for commodities, so very large. 
the typical recession has somewhere around about two, three, four percent impact on demand um, from from past recessions. There's no doubt we are probably technically already in a recession in the US and probably other countries as well. There's no doubt that we'll uh, we'll all head into a recession, you know, globally. So I think that's a given there. So I think that does impact it, um, the short-term demand for, for these commodities. And that's why, you know, we're very specific about the commodities we're targeting. We're targeting two types, energy, mm. um, because of the crisis in Europe, and then secondly, those that, that are focused on, on EV. So you know, our iron ore exposure at the moment is the lowest it's been, I think, in the past decade, as, as an example. And, and we could say the same for a lot of other commodities here. On the supply side, I think you've touched on something that's really important, but it, it doesn't impact short-term movements. It impacts the medium to longer-term outlook. There has been a record underinvestment in commodities and commodity projects over the last 15 years. We've seen record levels of you know, fiscal discipline from the majors in terms of giving money back to shareholders as opposed to buying projects at the top of the cycle. I think people also have to understand too that you know a billion dollars invested in a project today has much less impact in terms of new production as a billion dollars invested 10 years ago, A, because of cost inflation, and B, because you know the fact that projects are much, much lower grade. The average copper project is about 0.4 to 0.5% copper grade now, as opposed to over 1% you know, 15 years ago. So for all these reasons, I think you know the outlook for commodities over medium to longer term is very good, but the supply side doesn't have a huge impact on the short term outlook. You've only got to look at the capital management initiatives of the other coal players. You look at the buybacks Whitehaven are doing, Terracom spitting out huge dividends, New Hope Coal as well. You know, the supply response, it's not coming from them, is it? I mean, a lot of those guys aren't even interested in developing their own projects, let alone bringing on, you know, buying new projects to bring online because right now their equity is just so, so cheap, they're preferring to just buy that or, or, or give the money straight back to investors. Yeah, spot on. I mean, you know, Whitehaven doing a 10% buyback and then, then getting shareholder approval for another 25% buyback. I mean, that's extraordinary. That's over a third of the capital of the company they're looking to, to buy back and cancel. You know, so you're spot on there. I mean, you know, the approval process now is so difficult and so challenging in most uh, industrialised nations for new coal projects. You know, New Hope, for example, has been fighting over 10 years to get an existing project extended. Um, you know, you look at something like Yankol, I mean, it hasn't developed a single new project, it's simply bought the Rio assets, you know, Stanmore bought BHP's assets. So, you know, there's no new projects coming on stream and, and we're seeing that, you know, in another commodity, for example, in gas, where we're seeing this huge, you know, um, tightness in the market there. And it's not because there's a shortage of gas reserves or resources, it's simply, a, you know, the, the, lead pro- the lead time to develop a project. They say now that for the average commodity from you know, first discovery to first production is 13 years, once you get through the approval process, financing and uh, construction. So you, know, you can see that the outlook, the medium term outlook for commodities is very good. But as I said, short term, we've got this recession on the horizon. And to be, just to finish up, talk me through the numbers. So for calendar year 22 numbers, what's their market cap currently? What do you think they can do EBIT-wise? Uh, and maybe what sort of dividends can you see them paying out? 
Yeah, so so it's a really good question to focus on market cap there because you know, the market cap is just under three billion, and they're producing the same amount of coal as Whitehaven with a market cap of nine billion, but they're producing net coal as opposed to thermal coal, which is the much higher margin product over time. So this is what this is where we do see some danger in some of the thermal coal producers because over time we do expect the thermal coal price to come back sub US hundred dollars a ton. Um, you know, from a 400 mark now. So, so there is a lot of danger in those producers over time. There's a lot more stability in something like a Coronado because over time we expect the the Met coal price to average US 180 or thereabouts, maybe a bit higher now um, over longer term there. So we sort of see that, you know, on the current metrics, we, we expect they're on about a P of 2.2 to 2.3 times. We're slightly under consensus, so we our model's slightly pointier. Uh, we see that they can generate free cash flows. That's after all sustaining capex, after tax, after everything, free cash flow of about seventy-two percent over the next two years. So that means they're going to they're going to um, generate seventy-two percent of their market capitalization in free cash over the next two years. So you can get a lot wrong post that and still make very good money from here. Um, we think dividends will be highly variable depending on how the coal price maps out over the next sort of six to nine months. Um, but we do think they'll probably beat, surpass their record dividend, which was 60 cents um, in calendar year 2019. And we think the outlook is, you know, for around about between 55 and 60% in dividends over the next two years again. So, as I said, there's no doubt that it's, it's a, a cyclical play. There's no doubt that, that it comes back from here. But we think we generate so much cash and so much the returns are going to be so high that will justify uh, any reduction in the, the share price in the coming years. Roman, it's a brilliant outline of Coronado. Mate, thanks very much for, uh, for coming back on the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having us. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.